Oh, it helps when I turn it on. <laughs> Rookie move. Um, so we're, we're starting a series called the Sermon on the Mount. It's a famous sermon of our Lord and Savior, and it's in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And uh, today what we're going to do is we're going to do kind of an overview. Um, there's a, a, a late preacher named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he was in London, but he preached a, a bunch of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, and it ended up being, when they published it, a book of over 500 pages. But one of the insights that he had is you can't really understand any portion of the Sermon on the Mount without a reference to the whole. Uh, one of the sayings that's out there is you don't want to miss the forest for the trees, or, or you know, however you kind of stack that one up. I'm not great with sayings, but anyways, people will say, like, sometimes you, you can't see the forest for the trees, meaning you're, you're so focused on the small details of something that you miss out on the bigger picture. And so that's what we're going to spend some time today doing, is just kind of framing out the bigger picture of the sermon, and hopefully that will both help us immediately, but then also prepare us for the weeks to come. So Matthew chapter 5, we'll read the first two verses, uh, that lead up to the sermon itself, and then we'll look at the final two verses right after the sermon in chapter 7, and, uh, and, and that'll frame out our discussion. So Matthew 5, verses 1 to 2. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Okay, now Matthew 7, this is the very end, at the conclusion of the sermon, Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word together with anticipation, we're asking, Lord, that you would speak. We want to hear your voice today. We want to know what it is that you came to accomplish. We want to understand your teaching and how it affects our lives, Lord. We, we pray that by your spirit, you would be moving in each and every one of us, both here at the farm and watching online and watching later even, Lord, would you help each and every one of us to know you better and serve you more faithfully, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what we find here then is a teaching about the kingdom on how to be different. So the sermon really is a teaching about the kingdom of God on being different. So let's look at those one at a time. It's a teaching, and the first thing that we note is it's a teaching for the disciples. So if you look at verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him. Now the commentators point out that the way this sentence kind of falls out is kind of indicating that even though there's this huge crowd, Jesus isn't enamored by that. He actually goes in a different direction. He, he sees uh, the crowd and he goes up on a mountainside uh, where his disciples come to him and he sits down and he begins to teach them. So he's teaching his disciples and this is a strategic move. Um, if, if you want to have tremendous influence in this world, one of the things that you could do is invest in a few. Um, to, to spend your time prioritizing a ministry to a handful instead of a ministry to the masses. That's what Jesus is doing here. In fact, there's a, there's a, a classic book called The Master Plan of Evangelism. Evangelism is sharing the faith. Uh, this book by uh, Dr. Robert Coleman is the master plan of evangelism, and you open the book, and what you find is not a strategy for how to share the good news of the gospel, 
but you find the priority of Jesus himself was to spend time with his disciples. He invested in the few for the sake of the many. So when Jesus sees the crowds, he goes in a different direction. He's not averse to crowds. He ministers to, to the many often, but he spends time investing in the few. So this is a teaching, and, and the primary audience is the group of disciples that are following Jesus. Well, it is a teaching. Look at verse 2. He began to teach them. And then even if you consider those last two verses at the end of chapter 7, when he finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. So he's teaching, and that begs the question, why? If this is God in flesh, if this is truly the Lord, why is this his strategy? Why does he teach people? And the, the reason, as I was thinking about it this week, was it's not that there's an absence of information. It's that there's an absence of wisdom. There's tons of information. In fact, even within the sermon, we find out that there are, there are teachers of the law. They have the Bible. They have the words. They've got Pharisees and scribes. They've got all kinds of information. But what they're, what they're lacking in is in the department of wisdom. What does it look like to know God and serve him faithfully? So Jesus begins to teach. He wants people to know not just a bunch of information about God or, you know, memorization of, of things that are in the Bible, but he wants people to know how might you live in a way that is wise? How can you take this information and make application in a way that's pleasing to God? That's why the Lord is a teacher. And that's why the New Testament picks that category up and says, this is a primary ministry of the church. The teaching ministry of the church is significant, not because we don't have information, but because we need to know how does that information affect life change. Um, that's what we're after. Now, you've got, if you've got a cell phone, you've got a tremendous amount of information. In the palm of your hand, you have the web, right? You can go online. You can say, hey, Siri, how do, I, how, how do you spell aardvark? right? Like in, in, in olden days, people had to like go to a library or go to somebody who would know something, but we all have a, a tremendous amount of information. We're watching all this stuff through, you know, uh, media, through social media, through all these different devices. We have all kinds of information, but the thing that we need today, this isn't just the first century, but we need it today. We need wisdom. How do we take what God has said and make application in this moment so that we might live faithfully unto God. So Jesus began to teach them. Let's look briefly at the content of his sermon, and I'll just go through the various sections, and then I think maybe you'll be able to trace some of the themes going through it. But the first section in chapter 5, verses 3 to 12, have to do with character. And what he's describing there would be the characteristics of a person who is a member of the kingdom, or the characteristics of somebody who's experiencing the blessing of God. They're called the Beatitudes, the blessed attitudes. There's a formula. It says, blessed are the, and then it fills in a description, and then it says, why? For they experience this sort of blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there's a bunch of them. So he lists those out in the first section there. He's talking about character. What kind of person are we dealing with when we think about this Sermon on the Mount? The second section then has to do with cultural engagement. If you're that kind of person, what does it look like to, to interface with the world? What does it look like to be able to be 
redemptively engaged in the world. And it gives us a couple categories there. It says that people who are blessed are like this. They're like salt and light. They're like salt. They f- they're flavorful. They bring something good. They're like salt in the sense that they're also preservative of the decay that's happening in our society. But they're also like light. They're like a, they're like a city on a hill. They're, they're like this beacon of light that is disseminating and helping people. And so the people who are blessed are able to engage with the world in a redemptive way. The third section has to do with their morality. How do, how do these people interact with um, doing right? And one of the things that he wants to clarify is they actually love the Bible. This is not contrary to scriptures. In fact, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And the, the blessed people, the kingdom people, they're going to obey this, but they're going to do it a little differently. Not in a way that's wrong, but in, in the way that these things are actually intended for. And so in chapter 5, verses 17 to 48, he describes this reality of, of the kingdom citizens living in a way that is righteous, practicing and teaching what the law says in a way that is true to its intentions. Well, then the next section has to do with spirituality. It it looks at how do these people engage in spiritual practices, worship, prayer, fasting? What does that look like? And, And he begins to describe, well, it's a little different. They don't do it like other people for the show. They don't do it so that people might look at them. They don't do it like hypocrites. They do it for the sake of their relationship with their heavenly father. They do all these different things of worship and prayer and fasting because they want to interact with their heavenly father. So their spirituality, their religion is different. Well, then it goes on to the relationship that these people have to the world in chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. The way that these people interact with the world is different because they treasure something foreign to what most people treasure. Their treasures are stored up in heaven. They have a treasure in a place that they cannot lose it. C.S. Lewis famously said, don't put your hope in something you might lose. Well, kingdom citizens have put their hope, they've put their treasure in heaven itself and the one who is there. So they love God and they love God's kingdom of heaven and therefore they are treasuring something that is foreign to the rest of the world. But it's, it's different then. In fact, it goes on to describe how they deal with the, the cultural moment then. They're non-anxious. While the rest of the world might be saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, everything's falling apart, kingdom citizens go, we're not anxious. We're not worried about the day's troubles. We are seeking first the kingdom of heaven and the righteousness of the one who resides there. We're different. We're different. We're okay. So they have this relationship to the world that's described in the end of chapter 6 there. Then it moves into a section on relational wisdom. What does it look like to deal with other people? In chapter 7, verses 1 to 20, it describes the way that kingdom citizens deal with other people. First off, they're self-aware. They're not judging other people. In fact, you'll be very familiar with this. It says that we are not to look at somebody else who has a speck in their eye when we have a log in our own. And so we deal with people differently. We're self-aware. We're aware of our own tendency to sin. And so we're careful then in our relationships. But it goes on to describe the way that we pray for other people. We ask, we seek, we knock. And that comes in that context of relationships. We want to pray 
that God would help us to discern how we can interact with other people. So we're self-aware and we're careful and we're prayerful and we're discerning. Kingdom citizens are discerning of false teachers. It introduces a category of people who are not disseminating truth, but they're actually spreading error about God in this world and, and our role in it. And so chapter 7 tells us about this relational wisdom. And then the final section has to do with the preacher. This whole sermon really comes down to whether or not we know the one who's preaching it. And so in verses 21 to 27 of chapter 7, the question is asked, do you really know him? Because everything that's going on in this sermon, you, you can't really get at, get at it without knowing the preacher himself. And there are people who will say, did we not do all these things in your name? And he will say flat out, I never knew you. You're performing a lot of different religious activity, but you don't know me and I don't know you. And so he says, build your life instead on a foundation that is sure on my words. So we are to know the preacher. Now over and over again throughout the series, I'll probably come back to that. That, that is a very, very important concept. If we're going to listen to the Sermon on the Mount and make any degree of application to our lives, it all has to do with him, with Jesus himself. So that's the sermon or the content of the sermon there. But let's, so this is a teaching, but let's look at the main theme. And it is a teaching about the kingdom. Jesus is teaching here about this reality called the kingdom. He is concerned that we would know something about this kingdom that he has come to inaugurate. When he began his ministry in chapter 4, you can, look, you can glance over at it, but he begins his ministry, and the very first thing that he does straight away is he begins to preach, and this is Matthew 4, 17, he begins to preach this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, or is at hand, if you're familiar with older versions. The kingdom of heaven is, it's come near, it's, it's at hand. So now is a time for us to repent and prepare for that kingdom. He has come to declare that kingdom. In fact, in verse 23 of chapter 4, he's tra traveling throughout all the regions. He's going to their, what, what would be considered their church services. And what's he doing? He is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So this is a feature of his ministry. He is one who is declaring the good news of the kingdom of heaven because he is the king. So he's announcing this news. He then calls his disciples in chapter 4. He gathers some people together right on the heels of that chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. He gets his disciples together, sits them down, or he sits down. They come to him. He begins to teach them the, the essence of the kingdom. This is a sermon. This is a teaching about the kingdom. Now, within the sermon itself, you see this over and over again. Dr. Don Carson puts it like this. He says, the Beatitudes, those different blessings, they start and end with what's called an inclusio. It's a, it's a device to say, it's like bookends. It's like you have an idea, and then you say some stuff in the middle, and then you say the same exact idea again. And when you do that, that means that everything that has been said has something to do with this one idea. So the idea is, there is this kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 3. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's that idea the first time it shows up. 
Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about uh, kingdom people here. And then he says a bunch of other stuff over the next several verses, and then he gets to verse 10, and he says it again, but this is a little different this time. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Identical phrase here, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This sermon, this teaching, is a teaching on the kingdom. So whoever these blessed people are, they are the ones who are receiving this kingdom of heaven that Jesus has come to, de- to declare, to proclaim. We're talking about kingdom people here. As you move through the sermon, the idea of the kingdom keeps showing up. When it, talk- when it talks about the law, when it talks about the Bible, he says, look, those who practice and teach this, the, the law, will be called great in the kingdom. But those who are neglectful of this, who do not practice and teach it, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven if they even get in. In fact, in verse 20, he ups the ante. He says, look, he says, um, people who don't practice righteousness will not even enter the kingdom. So this is a message about the kingdom of heaven. The next section, as you keep moving on, it talks about a relationship with the Father. And the, the idea then is in the background, because where, where's the Father at? Well, He's in the kingdom of heaven. He's in heaven itself. So these people are doing things for their heavenly Father. They're, they're worshiping, they're praying, they're fasting, because they're concerned with the Father who is in heaven. So that whole section is, is alluding to this idea of the kingdom of of heaven. They are not practicing their religion in a way to be noticed by others, but they're practicing religion in a way to have a relationship with their heavenly Father. And then they go into the, in the next section, it talks about how they have their treasure. Where's that one at? Heaven. Their treasure is in the kingdom of heaven itself. They are seeking first the kingdom of heaven and the righteousness of the king who lives there. So everything else is secondary. So over and over and over again, Jesus is reminding us that this is a teaching on the kingdom of heaven. He is inviting people to be a part of this citizenship of heaven. Jesus is proclaiming that there is a new society. There is a new kind of people. There is this, what could be referred to as a city within a city. People who reside in a particular location, but they're primary concern is not their immediate geography or the local officials here, but their primary concern is the citizenship of heaven. Or in the words of Eugene Peterson, he's describing a colony of heaven in the country of death. He's describing what the church is. It is a a people who who are citizens of heaven. We are to be people who are concerned primarily with the kingdom of heaven. And he then is describing how these people interface with a broken world. That's what this sermon is about. It is a teaching on the kingdom. But it's a teaching on the kingdom on how to be different. John Stott, the late uh, Anglican preacher, he says that the main verse in the Sermon on the Mount, for him at least, is Matthew 6, 8, where it says, do not be like them. If you are a member of this heavenly citizenship, you are to be different. You are not to be like the rest of the world. You are to be 
an incredibly different individual. You're to be different from unbelievers. In fact, there's a whole section in there where it talks about being different from unbelievers. And in, 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 the, in the setting in the, the scripture here, they're called pagans. But I don't love that word because I've heard self-righteous people use it in a derogatory way where they talk about the pagans, these unbelievers, these nasty unbelievers. But we, we would say members of God's citizenship in heaven are different from unbelievers. Unbelievers don't know God. They don't live in relationship to God. Therefore, Christians should not look identical to them. Why? Because we're different from them. We know a heavenly father. We're serving him. We're walking by faith in him. We're trying to live in a way that's pleasing to him. Therefore, we are different. But then there's a surprise feature here. Not only are Christians different from unbelievers, we're also different from religious people. And there's a whole section in there where he says that we are to be different from those who practice a religion that is not true. Those who go through all the different activities of, of what appears to be godliness, but they actually don't know God. So he introduces that in chapter 520, where he says that our righteousness ought to be greater than the people who are professionally trying to obey the Bible, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Kingdom citizens actually have a better righteousness than that, because the other one, the, the one of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that's a home-brewed righteousness. They're trying everything they can to obey, but they're not obeying by faith. So kingdom citizens live differently than the religion. He goes on, there's a, there's a whole section in there where he says, you've heard it said. So you've heard your teachers tell you these things. You've heard them explain these things. You've heard it said by religious leaders to do this, this, and this. And then Jesus says, but I tell you, this is what it really looks like to obey and follow God. And then there's a section where it describes worshiping and fasting and praying. And he says, do not do it like the hypocrites, like people who are doing it so that others might notice them and think well of them. But you do it entirely differently. You do it for the sake of your relationship with the Heavenly Father. So it's everywhere in here. In fact, Stott puts it like this. There is no single paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount in which this contrast between Christian and non-Christian standards is not drawn. It is the underlying and uniting theme of the sermon. We are to be different. Now, let me, let me just share with you why this is so personally important to me. Um, several years ago, we, a team of us, some of you are sitting here today, decided that God, we felt like God was calling us to launch a church, and we set out and we launched a, a satellite campus of Central Christian Church, and um, and then over as time progressed, and we considered what God was doing, we felt like God was calling us to become our own local church, and that happened in 2021. And um, I'll, I'll just shoot straight with you: the launch of the church has been the hardest thing that I've ever done in my entire life. And I was, I was predicting it would be, but I was not prepared for what it would feel like to go through it. And what I'm, what I'm coming to the conclusion is, I am not going to give my life to just do church as normal. I'm not going to wreck myself for the sake of just holding services like just having, you know, religious programming where we come together and we sing some songs 
And, you know, we open the Bible and we go, okay, that was cool. And then we just kind of march out of here unaffected. I'm not interested in that at all. In fact, I'm not interested in us being a, a kind of church that's predictable. A lot of people who are studying trends in, in the life of the church right now are noticing what they're calling the, um, the great migration, meaning people are moving around in churches right now to better fit their political affiliations. And, and it's just happening at a, at a large scale right now, unprecedented right now, so that people are kind of landing where they feel most comfortable. And I, I'm just going to say it, I'm not interested in that either. I'm not interested in saying, here's, here's who we are, guys, so if you want to be a part of this team, that you know, sign off on all these different things. I'm not interested in doing church in a way that's predictable. I'm interested in the kingdom of heaven. And I, I want to create an environment where people are listening to the voice of the king and realizing that he is very disruptive. And our politics are going to have to shift and change in different directions so that we might be faithful to him. And so... I want us to be different, different from unbelievers, different from the religious folk. I want us to be faithful to the king. That's what I'll give my life for. That's what I'll spend all of my time and my energy working toward. But we have this invitation from the Lord himself to hear the message of the kingdom and to embrace this new identity, to be a people who are different. Stott puts it like this. He says, insofar as the church is conformed to the world and the two communities appear to the onlooker to be, to be merely two versions of the same thing, the church is contradicting its true identity. No comment could be more hurtful to the Christian than the words, but you are no different from anybody else. If, if an onlooker comes in here and they're watching us, or if they spend some time with you and they're, they're observing your life, if the conclusion that they come up with is you're really no different than anybody else, you just use spiritual language. Your life is very predictable. It's, it's, it's just like anyone else in our society. If that is the case, we are falling short of God's intention for us. God wants us to be his heavenly people who are different. And that is an incredible invitation, and it is a high calling. And so the question we might want to ask is, how on earth are we going to do that? Right, Cor? How on earth? Like, I know that's aspirational. We want to be different. We want to be kingdom people. We want to look and feel different to the watching world. We want to be salt. We want to be light. We want to be good news people. But how? And the answer is very obvious and somewhat easy. It's our relationship to the preacher. It's our relationship to the king, Jesus himself. Jesus is the king of the kingdom, and he is the way to this incredible life. It is him and him alone. And so let's be people who are looking to him and trusting in him and walking by faith in him and obeying him and serving in his name. Let's be his kingdom people. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking that you would help us. We're praying that your teaching on the kingdom, on how to be different, would actually land on our hearts and that we would be radically changed by the good news of the gospel, that we would become people of the kingdom who are blessed because we know you. 
We're praying, Lord, that we would interact with the world differently, that we could be redemptive agents of change in a broken and hostile world, that we would be non-anxious people who are trusting in you and seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. We're praying, Lord, that you would so radically change us that it would be obvious to people that we are different because we are following in the footsteps of the King. So help us please to do that for your glory, we pray. Amen. Thank you.